Greetings, everyone. I'm Jason Meyer in Princeton, New Jersey, and welcome to a special crossover episode. Not one, but two podcast audiences will uh, will enjoy this. It it's like it's like SVU goes to Chicago. This is Tom Fox, and I would like to welcome you. Greetings and felicitations. In this podcast series, I'm going to be visiting with thought leaders, entrepreneurs, historians, and a wide variety of other people on topics that are outside the area of compliance, but are of great interest to myself and to listeners to the Compliance Podcast Network. In this episode, Jason Meyer and I continue our annual tradition of Ethics Madness. Ethics Madness is a discussion of ethics and compliance, which occurs during March Madness. This is the first time we've done the podcast format. Greetings, everyone. I'm Jason Meyer in Princeton, New Jersey, and welcome to a special crossover episode. Not one, but two podcast audiences will uh, will enjoy this. It it's like it's like SVU goes to Chicago. It's like when all the different NCISs get together. But here it's me, Jason Meyer, in Princeton of the Eight Mindsets podcast, and my good friend Tom Fox of the Compliance Podcast Network. And we are together for a special occasion. Hi, Tom. How you doing? I'm doing great, Jason. I'm really looking forward to having some fun today. Why in the world are Tom and I together? Well, it, 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 there's a whole story, and it begins with this phrase, Welcome to Ethics Madness 2022. So several years ago, uh, Tom and I decided to do something uh, to give ourselves an excuse to watch basketball. So it's March. We're in the middle of March Madness. We're in the middle of the NCAA basketball championships, uh, arguably the greatest month in sports. Um, and it all started, uh, the tournament all starts with the, the first round where there are uh, uh, 16 games played on each of a Thursday and Friday. It's wall-to-wall basketball. And several years ago, we decided, hey, uh, what if we got together in some kind of live setting uh, that gave us an excuse to watch basketball, talk about the basketball games, but also talk shop? And Ethics Madness uh, was born. Uh, and Tom, for, for a while, we uh, we did live blogging when that was, uh, you know, that was a thing people paid attention to. Then I think we had a year or two where we did sort of live tweeting. Uh, and we talked about the basketball games and we talked about ethics at the same time and looked for parallels, and commented on the commercials and stuff like that. Well, hey, you've got the whole Compliance Podcast Network. Nicole Rose and I have the Eight Mindsets podcast. And so we thought this year, Ethics Madness is moving to a new format. Let's go podcast. So uh, welcome to Ethics Madness, an excuse to talk about basketball, to talk about sports, and to find the link between sports and compliance and ethics. And uh, Tom, your your Houston Cougars, I guess, are already in the Sweet 16. Uh, the women of Princeton let me down last night uh, in terms of when we're recording this. Uh, it is uh, now March 22nd, and, and the Princeton women fell one point short of being the first Ivy League team to move into the Sweet 16 of the women's bracket uh, in a valiant effort against Indiana. But the tournament is is still ongoing. And still, it's still a timely time to talk ethics. So, Jason, uh, in listening to your description of the history of ethics madness, it really made me realize that in many ways we follow technology. 
as technology has advanced, ethics madness has advanced. And uh, we are doing the podcast format this year. I would say the only thing that I rue is that we were not watching uh, television on Thursday and doing ethics madness. So we could have had live commentary on Kentucky and St. Peter's. Uh, I think that would have just been too much fun. But uh, uh, for those who have listened to us before, uh, you will know Jason will break in with a, a breaking score or some breaking news that always added to it. But we've had some really interesting discussions around different ethical issues in a variety of sports on Ethics Madness. And I know you've got some topics for us uh, this year. What's uh, what's on your mind and on the intersection of ethics and sports, Jason? Well, well, to me, there's there's uh, there's a couple stories at top of all, but but the first one, I, Tom, I got to get off my chest right away, which is uh, I've been turned on uh, to the fun of Formula One motor racing, right? The you know the the mad the madness in Europe uh, that is F1 that is supposedly the most elite form of motor racing, um, you know, just the, the the most technologically advanced cars, and I have over the last couple of years become a huge fan. So it was an enormous disappointment to me in the final race of the 2021 season. Uh, Lewis Hamilton, the seven-time world champion, trying to win for the eighth time, and Max Verstappen, the slightly younger upstart racing for Red Bull Racing, uh, the last race was going to determine who was the world champion. And throughout that race, uh, Lewis Hamilton in, in, in his uh, Mercedes was consistently the fastest car. Just as the race ran normally, uh, he and the Mercedes were, were just clearly outpacing the Red Bull car until there was an accident with three laps to go. The race was brought to a red flag stop. And in the heat of the moment, the Red Bull team, which was able to, here's the unique thing about Formula One, which no longer exists because of this Formula One changed its rules in the offseason. But under last year's rules, leaders of racing teams could directly communicate with the race director, basically the head official, and like make arguments, like talk to him on the radio and say, well, you have to do X, you have to do Y. And somehow Red Bull persuaded Michael Massey, the race director, to use a restart procedure that was not in the rules. <laughs> and I won't go into details, but basically there was room for interpreting the rules one of two ways. And either way, if he had gone that way, Mercedes, which was positioned ahead of Verstappen's Red Bull at the restart, would have won the race. Massey came up with a third interpretation of the rules, completely unprecedented, that basically made the Mercedes car in front a sitting duck. Verstappen was able to pass. Verstappen won the race and the world championship, denying Lewis Hamilton his eighth world championship, much to the dismay uh, of not only Formula One fans, but many compliant sports fans uh, that, that I follow uh, on Twitter. So, uh, Tom, the thing about this was, and the you know, we always try and tie these things back to, okay, I'm running a compliance program. What does this have to do with me? And to me, it was that whole nature of changing the rules in the middle of the game. It's that that most basic lack of a sound philosophy, which is non-universality, right? If you apply the rules one way, 
in one situation, you have to apply them the same way in another situation. And this was a case where the rules were applied in a way that clearly determined the outcome. And I will say, and this is a point I've made on Twitter, you know, the the highbrows may badmouth NASCAR as being this, you know, American form of going around in left-handed circles. Uh, and, you know, how does that compare to Formula One? But here's the thing about NASCAR. NASCAR has accidents in the last three or four laps of a race, too. And it has very clear restart rules. And in fact, in the Daytona 500, there were two crashes this year. There were two crashes in the last five laps. There were no arguments. Nobody was saying it was unfair. The rules were clear. They followed the rules. A winner was determined. Um, So for all the highbrow Formula One, NASCAR seems to have the rules and compliance thing down better. So I know you're not a, I know you're not an F1 fan, but uh, you know, maybe thoughts on, on, you know, changing the rules in the middle of the game. So let me see if I can maybe reframe it a little bit, because what it brought up for me is institutional justice and institutional fairness. And uh, if I could digress a little bit, um, my father came out of world war two and he felt like the greatest gift that he received from the war psychologically was not fighting for democracy, but that the working man deserved institutional justice at work. And he took that forward to becoming a labor arbitrator, where he uh, adjudicated disputes between companies that had union contracts um, with labor unions. And part of a large part of that was around discipline of workers, termination, suspension, et cetera. And he viewed termination from the job as the ultimate form of cor- of punishment in the corporate setting. And um, in fact, he called it the death penalty in the corporate setting. And if a worker was fired and he was an arbitrator, he would uphold the firing if procedural fairness and procedural justice in the form of a seven-step process was followed. If the process was followed, he would more than likely uphold the determination. But if it was not followed, he felt there was no procedural justice and he would inevitably put the person back to work, sometimes with a loss of pay, but sometimes with full pay. And so I had that, that background from a very different setting and moving forward into the compliance realm in June 2020, the Department of Justice released its evaluation update to the evaluation of corporate compliance programs. And for the first time, it said that the chief compliance officer is in charge or should be in charge of institutional justice and institutional fairness in a corporation. So that very much resonated with me, but it speaks to uh, exactly what I heard you talk about, which is you don't change the rules in the middle of the game. And you treat the boardroom the same as the shop floor. If you fire people in Brazil for cheating on their expense accounts and your top salesman in the United States cheats on this expense account, you fire him. Uh, justice is not a procedural justice for individuals only. It's fairness and consistency. And that's what F1 seems to be lacking is fairness and consistency from the start of the race to the end of the race. Uh, in that example. So that speaks to me to being directly within the remit of the compliance professional and the chief compliance officer. And now we have a workforce of millennials who really demand that from their employer. 
uh, it's it certainly is treated fairly, but it's treated consistently. So I think that message is an important message and one that chief compliance officers need to focus on as a part of their overall remit for a compliance and ethics program. Well, uh, I think it's a great point, Tom, and and uh, and really well put that it's you know and and the the sort of outrage that faced Formula One. And by the way, Michael Massey is no longer the race director. They have completely changed their procedures. Uh, there's dual race directors. I mean, they've made all sorts of rule changes, which basically come down to an admission uh, that that they blew it. Um, but one only need look at the outrage of uh, worldwide race fans over what happened at the end of the season uh, to get that lesson about the importance of maintaining procedural fairness and justice in your own systems. Um, so th- there you have it. That's what ethics madness is about, is that par- is finding the parallels between uh, the world of sports and the world of ethics. So I've got another story I want to I want to bounce off of you and and uh, your your lessons learned on that one were were so great I got to ask you about this one so we just finished the Olympics uh, summer and then winter uh, they were in China which led to all kinds of ethics issues on its own putting those issues aside um, let's focus on on the infamous story with the uh, with the Russian figure skating team. Um, led by the gold medal favorite who was found to have engaged in doping prior to the Olympics, um, but whose test sample was mishandled uh, so that none of this was discovered until during the Olympics where she was allowed to compete. And the Russians were allowed, you know, it's already not the Russian national team, of course. It is the Russian Olympic Committee, as if somehow that is neutral and divorced from the sports machine uh, of the Russian government. Um, but that was the wink and the nod that the International Olympic Committee gave to allow the Russians to continue to compete. And despite the doping, uh, and despite what seemed to amount to sort of straight-up child abuse, um, the Russians uh, competed and competed successfully in figure skating in the Olympics. Uh, but then when the Russians invaded the Ukraine, the, the sports world seemed to say, okay, then now, now you've crossed the line. You can cheat at our game. Um, but, you know, invading a defenseless population, I, I guess they finally found the line uh, that was that was too much. And generally, the international sporting community is told the Russians are no longer welcome to play. Um, I think that's the right outcome. I still wonder about the procedural fairness of this situation. Uh, and basically, you know, I mean, kind of uh, sort of the the same sort of thing that happened in Formula One in terms of popular reaction and the belief of, is this, is this game fair? Um, but I'm wondering if you have any thoughts about sort of, you know, okay, you can cheat at our sport and continue to compete in the sport, but if you, you know, but this is a step too far. Jason, the modern Olympic movement uh, began in 1896 as a uh, reestablishment of an ancient tradition. And part of the reason for the establishment of the modern Olympics movement was to foster goodwill among nations. Uh, I think the modern Olympic movement died in this Olympics. The decision by the Olympic Committee to allow uh, the Russian figure skater to continue 
was perhaps the most pathetic decision that they have ever made. And that's with an organization that has 126 years of pathetic decisions. Uh, there's absolutely no excuse for what they did. Uh, the fact that she was a minor, 15 years old, 15 year old girl is of no import. Uh, she was fed a performance enhancing drugs by her coaches and trainers. They knew exactly what they were doing. Uh, they were going to allow her to compete having failed a drug test uh, that had never been done before. And uh, whatever credibility the Olympics had in my mind is gone. Uh, they clearly cannot police themselves because they won't police themselves. And it, it ended in an even worse way possible than even I dreamed. I was terrified she would win the gold medal. Uh, then we'd have a whole kerfuffle over, well, gosh, should we not give her the gold medal even though she won? Or should we put the Russians on the medal stand? Or should we do something else? Well, we didn't have that because what happened was the pressure was so great that she essentially folded in the finals. She's a 15-year-old girl. Uh, you know, it could have been a 60-year-old white male under that kind of pressure. And she was not able to complete her performance. And um, in front of the world, literally. Then she skates off. And that's when the abuse starts. Because her coach jumps on her says, why did you give up? And on not national TV, international TV, yelling and screaming at her. Now, I grew up in a small town in Texas. I played football. I've been yelled at and screamed at. I've been hit. I've been thrown down, all by coaches. So believe me, I get that. But whatever happened to me, it was not in a stadium where there were more than a few hundred people thousand people and it wasn't on international television and even though I was 15 I'd seen it happen before so uh, it didn't excuse the behavior then and it certainly doesn't excuse it now and it was the absolute worst demonstration of coaching that I perhaps have ever seen on international television and it made me do something which I didn't think was possible which was to actually feel sorry for her. Um, seeing what pressure she was under and no doubt what was done to her uh, to get her to the level that she is. And so uh, I, I cannot express the level of my disgust at the International Olympic Committee, the IOC, and the Russians have made clear since the Sochi Olympics openly that they will cheat and they will continue to cheat. And according to the now Olymp US, or the International Olympic Committee, there are no sanctions for cheating, whether you admit it or get caught. So uh, I just see this as the end of the Olympic movement. You alluded to the uh, issues in China. Uh, that's been going to become a, a bigger issue. Um, what happens in the next Olympics when a Russian competes against a Ukrainian? Is it going to be like the 1954 Olympics when in water polo, the Russians and the Hungarians left blood in the water uh, from their Olympic match? Um, not really fostering goodwill among nations, but I was completely disgusted by the entire uh, situation. And as I said, I didn't think I could feel sorry for the competitor, but I did at the end of the day because of what she had to go through personally. These are 15 year old girls. 
are they great athletes? Well, how old was Nadia Comaneci when she did a perfect 10? I think she was 12. These, yeah, these girls can excel at the very highest levels of sports. And so I don't want to penalize young girls who are extraordinary. Um, until recently, we had, you know, women tennis champions, 16, 17, and 18. And um, so the, the level of athletic ability is certainly there, but uh, I just felt like the, the Olympic movement died when they made that decision, and I'm not sure we can bring it back. The post-Olympics commentary that referred to it is a that used the word grim, and I heard more than one reporter use that word, that the entire games were grim between COVID and the Russians and, uh, and Chinese human rights issues. Um, it's, you know, it's, it's a lot to recover from. And, uh, apparently it did not successfully foster, uh, goodwill among mankind. Um, you know, it, it, basically what it fostered was Putin deciding to wait a couple of months to please the Chinese before he invaded. I, I guess the, you know, I guess more lessons for compliance programs in terms of procedural justice, um, but also in terms of there, there being consequences um, that, that part of what people react to um, is not, you know, they, they want to not only see wrongdoing called out, they need to see that there are consequences of wrongdoing um, or that, that, you know, what's the thing that comes up in cheating in sports? What's the kind of thing that's always been said about, about like, you know, doping at the edge of what medical science can find, right? It's, well, everybody does it, right? I, I have to do that. To, you know, basically, I have to engage in that to compete because everybody does it. If I, if I uh, am too much of a stickler for the rules, I'm just penalizing myself. And what feeds that is the lack of sanctions, lack of consequences, um, even more so when some people face consequences, like the American sprinter in the Summer Olympics, um, who had a similar finding, but her test came back on time and she took herself out of the, you know, she didn't even appeal her removal from the games, uh, gold medal favorite. Um, when there is a, when there is a different application of consequences, that's just, you know, that's just fatal. And I, I think you know, people are really good at finding hypocrisy. They will find hypocrisy sometimes even where it doesn't exist. So when it does exist, uh, you know, to me, the lesson is always, it, it isn't just that that was a losing moment. You d- you destroyed your entire program, right? I mean, let's, let's take what you said, which I have no quarrel with, right? The IOC could have, it could be that that 50 other sports were run completely properly with you know, with no cheating, with no blemishes. But when that one premier sport everyone's watching is so clearly uh, tainted, it's bad for the entire program. It's bad for the entire institution. So we haven't talked basketball yet. Should we talk basketball? Let's talk basketball. It's uh, ethics madness. Let's talk basketball. It's ethics madness, man. Um, so the, the, there was actually a huge ethics compliance story uh, well, a couple of big ethics compliance stories in NCAA basketball this year. The first one is not only is a men's March Madness going on, but the women's bracket, the women's NCAA championships are also taking place. And for the first time ever, we can refer to that as March Madness. For the first time, the NCAA has said 
that the women's tournament may also use the March Madness branding. And the NCAA has gone to some great lengths this year to try to increase the parity between the women's bracket and the men's bracket. The women's bracket is now also 68 teams. It has play-ins. It has uh, national uh, national TV coverage of all uh, of all of the games. Um, they've really tried to put the two of them in parallel. And interestingly, uh, this is happening 50 years uh, after Title IX. So it's the 50th anniversary of Title IX to get us to parity or attempted parity between the two tournaments. Uh, but we know actually this isn't a 50-year countdown. It's a one-year countdown because last year famously, when both tournaments took place in a bubble in a single location, um, there was a very famous viral video from a female basketball player who first used her cell phone to take pictures of the men's weight room where all the male basketball players could go to work out between the games and the supposed female weight room, which was one rack of weights in a hotel conference room. Um, it was it was sort of the most afterthought weight room you have ever seen. Uh, she just took a, a, a video saying, hey, this is our weight room. This is the men's weight room. What's up with that? And that led to an investigation that, you know, that uncovered a lot of facts people already knew. Uh, the women couldn't use March Madness. Uh, the way the money is shared was not equal, still is not equal between the men's tournament and the women's tournament. Uh, schools do not get the same share of the riches from the women's tournament that schools do from the men's tournament. Um, the accounting is different, which has uh, which has led to a long-held belief that the women's tournament does not generate funds, when in fact it does turn a profit. Um, but we are we are beginning to see some equity, some better equity here, fifty years after the passage of Title IX. And Tom, it's just it's just fascinating to me to see. I, I don't know that there are many people left who would who would come right out, or many men left who would come right out and say, you know, men are better. Uh, and uh, you you cannot watch the games and say the men's game is a better game. I, the women's games have been fantastic, uh, and frankly, it's a better level of team play. And if you're into things like assisting and passing and defensive formations, uh, the women's games in some ways are far superior. Um, but despite all that, we got 50 years since Title IX, and only now <laughs> is this happening. You know, what What does this tell us about the true sense? Uh, of course, it's just you and me talking here, and we're both all white guys. Um, but what does this tell us about the true sense of gender equity and compliance? First of all, unlike the IOC, the NCAA is farcical. And indeed, if they didn't have to pay royalties, I would suggest their theme song be Send in the Clowns because they're effing idiots. And they always have been. And when I was much younger, and there would be a violation by an Ohio State, a University of Michigan, a you name the big time university. You better watch out, Western Kentucky. They're coming after you. They amended that somewhat. Uh, they don't go after anybody now. Uh, and they are absolute idiots. Uh, the video you referenced could not have been starker. Literally, it was one of the great 
weight rooms I had ever seen and would love to have worked out in contrasted with one bench and one rack of weights in the same hotel. It, and uh, it was just basically like in the corner over by the kitchen, like, you know, where the dirty cups are yeah. taken. You know? and, um, and so then they, NCAA was shocked, shocked. Shocked, I tell you, to find that there's gambling, right? Yeah. And they instituted an investigation and they determined there was unequal treatment and they were shocked to find this out. So, um, a couple of things that really drove home one was obviously the gender inequality, two was though the, the, the power of social media. Matt Kelly has a great way of phrasing it it amplifies your message. And she was able to take a message that she either had said many times or certainly knew quite well as a female basketball player and was able to amplify that literally across the country to make real change. And as you, uh, this is fortunately an audio podcast so no one can see my face when uh, many of the things you're saying. But when you said this is the 50th anniversary of Title uh, Nine, I mean, that's just beggar's belief that it took this long for the NCAA to meet the law, just meet the law. And it's a part of, once again, the larger conversation that the ethics and compliance community is having about our role in ESG. Because you correctly note that DEI, diversity, equity, and inclusion, is a key component of ESG. And I advocate it's an equally key component of ethics and compliance. Because if you don't have diversity, if you don't have equity and you don't have inclusion, you're not going to have an effective compliance program. So uh, I think it's a great example of idiots and idiots who finally got the message, finally, 50 years later, um, and really the work that we still need to do, Jason. And we as compliance officers, if I can go back to the update to the evaluation of corporate compliance programs, we're the holders and the keepers of the institutional justice and institutional fairness flame. And we have to be uh, sensitive to that. And, uh, you know, kudos. I can't remember the, the female athlete's name, but kudos to her for doing that, uh, standing up and saying this is not right. And it wasn't right. And at least it got corrected. Yeah. And actually I'm going to, uh, th- there are, uh, I'm going to draw one more lesson, Tom, into the world of training communications, which, of course, is, you know, uh, our focus uh, here on the Eight Mindsets podcast about that video. And one is, you know, it did not take special technology. It didn't take a professional voiceover artist. Right. It didn't take, you know, uh, graphics and gamification and badges, uh, you know, or a, a. uh, a survey of all employees to make an extremely strong compliance point, right? It was one person with a cell phone um, taken, taking simple pictures that made a great point. Uh, and look what a powerful compliance message that sent. That's one lesson. The other lesson is um, the athlete, you know, she's one athlete, young person, cell phone generation, Right. She didn't think through, you know, sort of uh, the finer points of messaging and camera angles and everything else. She just went out very naturally and took shots 
and made a big point. And we have to be prepared, A, for an audience that is used to that kind of facility and power in routine communications, and B, for the possibility of that kind of routine communications maybe catching our organizations at something. Um, and just as I know most HR people assume every conversation that they're in with an employee is being recorded uh, probably, you know, by somebody with a cell phone in a purse or a pocket, um, we have to assume that everything going on in the workplace can be and may be videotaped um, and uh, will be can be brought to the fore quite powerfully in that way. And that's what came to bite the NCAA. The other interesting piece of gender equity news in sports in, in the last several months is that the U.S. women's national team in soccer had a successful settlement of its longtime uh, gender equity lawsuit, pretty much a straight-up employment discrimination case, leading to an equal pay agreement for the women's team and the men's national team, which was a powerful enough cause uh, not only to drive to the, the women's team uh, to World Cup, Cup Championship uh, last time out, but basically to lead most of the world to root for the U.S. women and to join in their cheers for equal pay uh, as they were playing the sport, which I thought was just a remarkable union of of sort of sports, uh, you could say sports and politics, but really not even politics. It was this sports and call for fairness, sports and compliance, compliance fairness, if you will. So uh, a big year in sports in the name of gender equity. Once again, we saw the U.S. National or the U.S. Soccer Federation um, resisted this for years wrongfully. Um, interestingly, on the legal front, the women's lawsuit was dismissed, and it was on appeal, uh, so there's no final dismissal. Mm-hmm. But uh, at least they were able to finally resolve it. I think, as you correctly know, or as you know correctly. Uh, resolved it successfully, uh, at least to the extent the women were satisfied, and uh, a long, hard slog. But maybe when we start talking about parity and equality at the NCAA, and now we have parity and equality from the U.S. Soccer Federation, uh, we will start to see uh, a real change in attitudes towards the differences, unfair differences in men's and women's sports. I think, you know, just as a sports fan, I sort of, you know, do sense this uh, this change in perception where, you know, we're really beginning to sort of like, okay, where, what's a good game? It doesn't matter to me what gender is playing. Um, what's the good game on now? Um, and and let me watch for that. Uh, and obviously, when we talk about the NCAA, we talk about the IOC, we talk about the Soccer Federation, FIFA, you know. These are all also lessons, of course, about the corrupting influence of money and being careful that your incentives don't run contrary uh, to to fairness and compliance um, or that's that's going to come to bite you. Uh, Tom, I don't know if you have any other sports stories you want to get into. There is one more basketball thing to get into for in, in the name of ethics madness, if, if you want. Um, but I, I don't want to. Uh, I don't want to take away any story you may want to tell. Uh, no, unfortunately, we need to talk about this. All right. So uh, this takes us to the world of men's collegiate basketball um, and uh, and the game between the University of Michigan and the University of Wisconsin and Big Ten play uh, prior to March Madness, um, where things got chippy, uh, as they sometimes will between rivals in any sport. Um 
but basically uh, what happened was Michigan was, was uh, uh, well in the lead uh, upsetting. Uh, it was, it was an upset um, as I, as I remember, as I remember the story and there's sort of these unwritten rules in sport. Uh, I'm familiar with the unwritten rules in baseball. Like, you know, um, you stop throwing pickoff plays to first if it's the ninth inning and you're up by, you know, you're up by five or more runs. You don't worry about picking off the runner at first, but by the same token, the runner at first isn't going to try and steal. Um, and basically what happened was sort of breaching those unwritten rules in terms of timeouts being called at the end when the outcome was already known and sort of, you know, uh, delaying celebrations and things like that. And words were exchanged between the coach. So, so at the end of an NCAA basketball game, the rules are that the teams engage in a handshake ritual. They pass each other along the sidelines and the coaches and players shake each other's hands on their way to the locker room. And in that handshake ritual, words were exchanged between the Wisconsin coaching staff and Jawan Howard, the head coach of Michigan. Uh, and it resulted in John Howard throwing a slap at the face of a Wisconsin assistant coach, making contact. Uh, John Howard was suspended for the rest of the regular season, which was only four or five games, um, uh, uh, amply substituted for by Philadelphia's own Phil Martell. I have to get a Phil Martell plug in. But basically, you had to sort of break down in gentlemanly sports, break down in following the unwritten rules. But actual fisticuffs come to uh, in the middle of the game and uh, debatable punishments for what went on. So here, here's what, you know, okay, they lost their temper. Uh, there was punishment. We could argue about the punishment. Here's what fascinates me about this, Tom, and you may have another perspective, and I would love to hear it. But let me ask you this question first. In the NBA, there is no longer a handshake ritual. Players can go up to each other if they want after the game and congratulate each other, congratulate each other. and a lot of them do because they're friends, and maybe they played on the same team in college or earlier in the pros, and they respect each other and others of the players hate each other's guts and would never say a word to each other. And, but, but they're free to stay or leave as they wish. The NCAA has this rule about the handshake ritual. And one of the reactions to the Joan Howard episode was, well, maybe we should get rid of that rule and no longer force the teams to confront each other. Now that to me is a fascinating question of compliance ritual against human reality. First of all, I'm a U of M grad, and I was beyond humiliated by this event. Juwan Howard is a member of the Fab Five. He will forever be a member of the Fab Five. He has not played Michigan basketball since 1993, and he's still a member of the Fab Five. There is no excuse, and I know there are certain words you can't say. Even if those words are said, you cannot take a swing at somebody. Uh, if you're a coach, you are a leader of men, even if they're young men, and you need to hold yourself to a higher standard at all times. And yes, he is emotional, and I'm going to get to that in a kind of next part of this, but there was absolutely no excuse. And I teetered on the fence of whether this was a termination offense. Uh, he has had one other incident, so this was not the first time. He had done something this inappropriate. So from the leadership perspective, I found a total lack of or a total failure of leadership from Jawan Howard. 
As to the handshake line, I was equally fascinated by that conversation because pro hockey has a handshake line. And there's no more violent sport other than boxing and UFC than <laughs> pro hockey. And those guys line up and shake hands. And I, I, I'm inspired by that. I find that to be, yes, they're professionals. Yes, they're being paid. But even 38, 40, 25-year-olds, you know, Jason, they played games like we did as kids, as teenagers, and they still play a game in many of their minds. And sportsmanship still exists, uh, even if things are very different now and you're a professional. And I've always respected uh, pro hockey for that, really value the, the handshake line. And I don't think it should be done away with. And the human reality of emotions and being overheated in the minute um, – you're certainly correct, and we've seen examples of that from things like player interviews by sideline reporters during a game or immediately after a game where emotions are running high to this situation. But I found no excuse for what Joan Howard did. Um, I eventually decided the punishment fit the crime, uh, and a five-game suspension was warranted. But he hurt his team. And his team did not win the Big Ten Championship. Uh, They went on a nosedive in those five games. And his actions negatively impacted his team. Now let me tell you about Juwan Howard, the empathetic emotional coach. And perhaps one of the great scenes of this tournament was after Michigan had upset Tennessee, and Tennessee had won the SEC tournament this year, one of the Tennessee players was literally inconsolable on the court. You rarely see that on the court. Occasionally see it in a locker room or you'll hear of it. And Juwan Howard literally put this kid in a bear hug to tell him it was okay. And one, it was okay to be inconsolable, but two, it was going to get better. And, you know, he didn't do that from any place other than his heart. And I think it was one of the great scenes I credit him for that. I'm sure others could have consoled the player, but to have the opposing coach do that really speaks to the reason I think the handshake line is so significant in college basketball that this this is a brotherhood of players. And he showed at that moment, Jawan Howard showed me, he could be a leader, he could be a leader of men, and he could be a leader of men in an empathetic way that, I obviously didn't see when he tried to or did hit the Wisconsin assistant coach. Yeah, the I agree with you about the handshake ritual and, and what stood out to me, a moment like that that stood out to me in, in this year's tournament was when uh Duke beat Michigan State um in the in the second round. Um and Michigan State uh was has been playing as Michigan State under Tom Izzo does tournament after tournament. Um, just completely outperforming its regular season when it gets to when it gets to March Madness, um, and Michigan State gave Duke uh, every you know every all that they could handle, and there were a couple of Michigan State players who were you know very upset uh, with with the last second loss to Duke, and in the handshake ritual, uh, Mike Shevsky, you know his his last time coach he's retiring it was his last time coaching against Michigan State. 
And he spent several minutes in the handshake line with these two Michigan State players, you know, hugging them and talking to them. Um, and, you know, you know that that is an extremely powerful moment for those young men, however upset they may be, that, that they're being recognized by, you know, by Coach K um, for, for their level of play. And you, you would hate to see that go away. And I guess a question for us in our programs is sort of like, okay, so what's, what, what is the equivalent moment where, you know, uh, maybe tensions were high, maybe people got rubbed the wrong way, uh, but is there some way we can, we can use our rituals uh, to foster that culture of um, everyone being in it together, um, everyone having the best interests of the larger institution at heart, uh, everyone, everyone playing and performing uh, from their heart, um, and everyone just trying to do the best they can for their own team uh, in service of something larger. And, you know, is there, is there some powerful ritual we can find to do that? Um, I hope that the Juwan Howard uh, incident is, is isolated. I couldn't help but think of, and, and as a U of M graduate, you'll, you'll pardon me when I say, I couldn't help but think of Ohio State uh, and legendary coach uh, Woody Hayes, um, who threw a punch in a moment of uh, of emotion, and it was the last he was ever seen of. Now, Woody Hayes swung at a player um, as opposed to a coach, um, but uh, you know, and and for all of his uh, decades of uh, service to the sport, that was the last he was ever seen on the sideline. Um, You know, we was one more understanding than the other. Was one situation different than the other? This, this, these are the sports arguments that make sports fandom so rich, but also give us the parallels uh, between what we do for a living in compliance and ethics, uh, and what we do for fun, um, which is watch sports. Tom, in the in the Eight Mindsets podcast, there are two things we always try to do to wrap up, and we didn't talk about this. I'm going to put you on the spot, and and you know through the magic of podcasting, if if I'm putting you on the spot too much, then well, hey, we just edit it out. But there are two things we always try and wrap up with, and one is okay. What what are the action items? What are the you know what's a to do? What can we take back to our program and do that we learned from our conversation? So uh, I guess I'll cheat and go backwards and claim something I already said, which is, hey, what can we do that's like a handshake ritual to support the culture we want to support uh, in, in our institutions? I think you offered another one already, which is better keep your eye on procedural fairness because nothing will sour your program, your entire program, uh, faster than people perceiving a lack of procedural justice. Is there some other action item that comes to mind for you, for our fellow compliance and ethics professionals? from this year's ethics madness uh from this year's ethics madness but the event last year when the female basketball player videotaped the gyms or weight rooms of the men's uh basketball tournament and the women's because it was as you said uh taken on a cell phone clearly not professional production but the power of the message really uh, i want compliance com practitioners to consider a couple of things. One, how you can create something very inexpensively that can be very powerful. Two, you can have a very powerful message that is short 
And three, you don't even have to have commentary. Um, you can just have the visual. So think about how can you create a, vet, um, a message for your compliance program, relatively inexpensive. What's the, the cost of videotaping with your cell phone? And put that out there. And to me, it really demonstrates the communication that she engaged in, which led to the change, and that our compliance brethren will hopefully be able to incorporate some of those techniques. And if you're my age or your age and you don't know how to do it, go down the hall to a 25-year-old. I guarantee you my daughter does it all the time. So uh, get some get some of your employees to help out, get them engaged, get them invested, and see what they come up with. And that is very much an eight mindsets message. So I appreciate that one, Tom. Uh, the other thing we do in wrap up, and now I'm, I'm really putting you on the spot, is uh, is I always come up with my compliance anthem of the week. Uh, you know, some some song out there in the ether that is a great song uh, that that has a so sort of inspiring, upbeat message to it, but also has you know maybe an additional message for for the compliance universe. So we we haven't prepared anything. I don't know if anything comes to mind, but but I will say, is there some song, like a rock song, that you keep thinking of in the compliance world? It's like, if there was a theme song, this is it. It's a little bit different, but here's what I used in an interview yesterday. I interviewed a gentleman named Bill Coffin. Bill has been in the compliance state space previously as the editor-in-chief of Compliance Week. He left that job to go to AIG in a broader risk management context. And he's back in the compliance space as editor-in-chief of the Ethisphere magazine. And I told him that the theme song for this podcast would be the Hotel California. Because once you're in compliance, you can check out, but you can never leave. (laughs) But you can never leave. Well, uh, you know, I, I never like to leave ethics madness. I never like, you know, I never like to leave uh, March madness uh, behind. It, it's it, it's uh, it is a family celebration. Uh, and if it weren't that March madness was immediately followed by the Masters, I don't really and and the beginning of baseball season, uh, it, the greatest week of sports when we go from the end of the NCAA tournaments, opening day of baseball. And Masters weekend, I will I will argue with anyone that is the greatest week of sports. Um, and as much as I hate to see that week go, I hate to see another year of ethics madness go by. But we'll have to figure out what technology calls on us to do in 2023, Tom. Um, it, it, it's been a fun conversation as always. Uh, it's been great. I've really enjoyed it. And uh, every time it comes to this time of year, I think of you and ethics madness. So I'll be doing the same again in 2023. Yeah, thanks for reaching out. And as we say at the end of every Mindsets podcast, that's a wrap. This is Tom Fox again. I hope you've enjoyed this special episode of Greetings and Felicitations. Obviously, Jason and I had a lot of fun doing Ethics Madness. It's an annual tradition. We do some social media form of Ethics Madness each year during March Madness. I know we will do it again next year. Perhaps we can have a live show. Thanks again for listening, and I hope you'll join me for our next episode of Greetings and Felicitations.